1: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop.
2: Please join me in welcoming Paul, Aaron, Zoe and Jeremy. Thank you. Thanks, David. Um, the London Review has held events like this before. We skipped 2010 because it seemed too predictable and too depressing, I think. But we did do one in 2005 and uh, I was in the chair then as well and we had... That night on the panel, two London Review politics writers David Runciman and Ross McKibben, we also had Polly Toynbee. And Polly told us this was two years after Iraq to hold our noses and vote Labour. And she would, wouldn't she? And Ross McKibben and David Runciman told us that it didn't really matter much what happened in that election because New Labour were finished and the Tories would get in anyway the next time because of the electoral cycle in Britain. He, they turned out to be right about that. But the point wasn't so much what they said that night as the terms of the conversation we were having. It was very much a pre-election conversation about the election. We talked about the parties and who would win and how, how many seats. We talked about the leaders. We talked about the campaigns and their effectiveness or otherwise. We were very much joining in the punditry around the election. This time that didn't seem so appropriate <coughs> to me. Um, ten years later after the great financial crisis, after five years of cuts and five, at least five more to come, uh, after Greece, after Scotland, after the riots of 2011, after the student occupations and demonstrations of 2010. Um, it seems to me that the disconnection between Westminster politics and life as it's lived by most people in this country has never been wider, at least in my lifetime. Now, that isn't to say that this election is unimportant or that voting doesn't matter. does isn't to say those things at all. It is important. It does matter. There are meaningful differences between the parties and what the result, the result next week will determine what the terrain looks like for other possibilities to emerge after the election. But it is to say, though, that the main parties share more than divides them when it comes to their unwillingness to face up to the problems, not to say crises that we face in this country at the moment. And this election is significant, not least for the way in which it exposes the lack of political vision on the part of the main parties. And the emergence of the minor parties and the women who lead (coughs) them and the progressive left is a symptom of that failure of political vision. So these things, the crises, as well as the changing electoral landscape are things that you could expect to deepen over the next five years. And it's those things that I wanted to talk about tonight with our panel um, I'm going To talk about the factors that will shape politics over the next five years or longer, uh, the way in which official politics will respond to those factors and the possibilities for the emergence of uh, popular progressive politics in that time. So let me just reintroduce our, our speakers far left is Jeremy Gilbert who's professor of political and cultural theory at University of East London. Um, Jeremy recently has been writing about left populism for open democracy. He's also written a pamphlet with Mark Fisher called Reclaiming Modernity for Compass. Um, his latest book is called Common Ground about meanings of collectivity and the possibilities for collectivity in an age of individualism. Jeremy, just back from Greece, and maybe that will uh, come up in our conversations tonight. My left is Zoe Williams. You all know Zoe. She's written everywhere about everything, um, but most prominently, maybe about politics for The Guardian for a number of years now. She's The Guardian's best thing. Her latest book is Get It Together Why We Deserve Better Politics. And it's a torrent of irresistible arguments. Um, against, neo, against neoliberalism and in favour of a collective politics. Like all great polemics, it's as enraging as it is inspiring. Aaron Bastani on my right, some formative time of it during those student occupations in 2010. Since then, he's been writing a PhD on the relationship between digital networks and collective politics in the age of austerity. I think that's right. Just finished, Aaron. Congratulations on that.
3: Well, i of the vibe of <laughs> yeah, Almost done.
2: And you might have finished it early if you hadn't spent much of the last four years building the multimedia extravaganza, which is Navara. Uh, yeah, pretty true. <laughs> pretty
3: true. My, my pretty Some of you might have thing. heard
2: the uh, the radio program that Aaron does with his co-host James Butler um, called Navara. And if you haven't, I sure you get on that. It's collected on Navarramedia.com. All right. I'm going to begin by talking about in the broader sense about the factors that are going to be affecting politics over the next five years. I'll start with you, I think, Zoe. Mm. Um, you know, the, in an election, I suppose the pol- politicians, the parties are supposed to give us a sense of how they will be influencing politics, mm. but of course they don't, mm. as we found to our cost in the last 10 years, get to determine those things very often. What do you think are going to be the salient forces shaping the political landscape over the next period?
4: Wow, that's, really, that's a really good question. <laughs> um Look, I mean, I think the main the main reason everybody's so bored by this election, the main reason everybody is so disenfranchised, is that they kind of is that politicians treat problems as though they're unanswerable, and they actually explicitly say this problem is unanswerable. So when you say when you you know you when you talk about the housing crisis, you you don't just get a lot of static in public; you get a lot of private messages saying. This is not a problem that politi- that politics cannot answer anymore. And this is, you know, this is a real reclaim modernity thing that modern, modernity in their, in their kind of conception of it is a place where politics can no longer answer those things. All it can do is kind of small technical things to alleviate the pain caused by the big tectonic shifts over which they have no control. So that's why, that's why nobody likes them. <laughs> It's because it's not. I mean, you know, I don't actually think it is because they're white and middle class and out of touch and posh. I don't even think that's the thing. I think it's because they're occupying the space where people would once have sorted these things out with a kind of immovable wall of these things can no longer be sorted out. And I think that's where the hostility comes from. So... In that sense, I don't, think the whole, I don't think the movements for change are going to come from engaging directly with politics. I think the movements for change are going to come from the movements around... Thank God he's nodding, because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I sit next to him and he's going like this. <laughs> um, the movements for, for change are going to come from engaging with the things that politics won't talk about. So that makes me think it's going to be housing, it's going to be wages. In America, when you look at, the, when you look at what people are talking about, they always mobilise around wages, Um, And I think that might be because their housing is cheaper. But I think these are the same things, really, Um, that as soon as mobilisation happens around the issues which politics won't talk about, those movements become bigger than politics. And that's what I'd anticipate. So I would think that the housing stuff and and that will be like big groups like um, Generation Rent and very small niche groups like Cressingham Gardens kind of building a network, which probably Aaron can tell you more about how that happens. But that's where I would expect it were to come, immediately after the election.
2: We'll definitely talk about the networks as we come round to them. Aaron, what about you? What about the forces um, that you expect to shape politics?
3: I think the, the question the next five years is really fascinating. I think probably the bigger questions the next 15, 20 years. Um, and I'd probably isolate four big, big changes, challenges, which I think are opportunities for people ...invested in radical politics. Um, I'd say the first one is significant demographic change. Britain, Europe, the global north is going to become a lot browner. It's going to become a lot browner. This country will become a majority-minority country by 2065. 2006, the Democrats did incredibly badly in midterms. It was the nadir of the US Democrat Party. Two-term George W. Bush, who was talking about Jeb, the third member of the House of Bush. Look how far things have changed. Um, drug decriminalisation in Oklahoma, same-sex marriage... Minimum wage campaigns across the country. A lot of that is tied up, actually, with these demographic changes. Uh, Latinos, blacks, becoming a more significant part of public life, simply reflecting their growth as populations within um, the United States. So that's one thing. Demographic change is a a big one. Next one's climate change. Mm. We'll talk about that, I guess, later. But it's absolutely ginormous as an issue. It cannot be bolted on Mm. to left politics or radical politics. If... If the Earth's environment increases by four degrees C this century, that's the upper estimate, but that seems increasingly plausible, likely, probable, um, two-thirds of the world's major cities will be underwater. Um, you'd see the melting of the Greenland and the Arctic ice sheets. Um, you'd see glaciers that provide drinking water for about two billion people melt. The reproduction of most of the world's population would be really challenged. I don't think, I don't think that means the end of capitalism, by the way. <laughs> I don't think... I'm not one of these... Can you get a, a sort of this anarcho thing on climate change? A brilliant collapse will the end of capitalism. I don't believe that, actually. But that's, so that's the second thing. I'd say climate change, demographics. And then the third one is obviously this demise of a certain economic model. Um, and it, it did finish in 2008 to, to, to a certain extent. So what has, what has finished and what has not come back? You look at, for instance the relationship between the global north and the global south after the mid-1970s. You could repress wages in the global north because you could get ever-cheaper consumer durables from the global south, China, India. Goldman Sachs executive said in 2012, there is no next China. There is no next China. Doubling in the global ma- labour market after 1989. Meant very cheap goods, you could repress wages in the global north. That had consequences for, in Marxist terms, the base but also the superstructure. <laughs> the ideology of late capitalism was about cheap consumer durables,
5: mm. and if they
3: don't exist anymore, that affects the superstructure, the ideology, how they manufacture consent in the global north as much as the base. Um, so that's, those are, the, those are three, three big things, and I say the fourth is technology, but I'd leave it at that. So those are the four big variables, and so quickly going back to the next five years, I think it's quite possible we'll see the beginnings or the continuation of the terminal decline, at least of one of the two major parties probably both of
0: them,
3: um, or at least at best case now a fragmenting. You're looking at a Labour government, I think very likely a Labour-led government, after May 7th, se- we're saying 7th, to the 18th in reality, that's when Parliament's going to come back in. So they're expecting a massive palaver after, yeah. after May 7th. Um, there's going to be a Labour-led government, and yet there's a 20-plus 20, 20 swing to the SNP north of the border. So there's not much, con- you know, there's not much consent. There's not much base. It's not your mandate for a Labour government. That's not, that's not me being, you know, critical of Labour activists or Ed Miliband. <laughs> I actually think he's a pretty decent le- leader as it goes. But that's where we are. And so if that's the high point of Labour getting into office and then having a twenty, a twenty percent plus swing against in Scotland, which by the way is bigger than anything any general election in the UK, Blair got a ten percent swing from the Tories in '97. Attlee got a twelve percent swing in '45. This is unprecedented. And that's actually Labour in big, big, big trouble. And any victory next month, I think, is going to really be a sticking plaster of a very serious long-term problem. OK,
2: well, we'll come back to that. Jeremy, if there's any factors you can add to that, that would be great. But also, could you let's take a step back? We'll talk about the future of the parties and how these things will affect them. But there's a lot of these factors we're talking about, political economy, not so much climate change. That's always the endlessly, forever deferred politics that's always waiting to, to be grabbed, but political economy, housing, wages. These are things which have also shaped the political system we find ourselves in, the political situation we find ourselves in. Maybe you could say something also about how, how it came to this, particularly for Labour, how it came to that they're in the position they're in.
1: How are we go into the situation we're in now. Yeah. Um, how far back do you want me to go? <laughs> 1871. Uh, all right. Well... Um, I'll go back to the 1960s briefly I mean one thing I think is important in understanding the context they are in now and this is just a supplement what you two have both said, it's not a, a sort of qualifi- even a qualification of it in any way is the kind of regime, the political, social and cultural regime which we've um, has, been, has remained you know, mobile but stable, it's kept things changing but it's kept class relations basically the same since the 1970s, emerges in response to a set of really serious uh, democratic challenges in the 60s and 70s, that the threat of that, the kind of democratic social demands, which to some extent the post-war welfare state cultivated, engendered, was, was going to topple capitalism. It's a, really a real live threat in the mind of people in the 70s. I mean, you look at what the elites were writing to each other. They were really scared. They really thought things like the Black Panthers were, 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 gonna, were, were some kind of revolutionary bunker. So partly what we've seen is a reaction. And in some sense, what we've been living through 30 years of global counter-revolution, that's part of, that's part of what's happened. That's part of how we got there. Um, the, other thing, and the, the other thing that's happened is in, in very broad social-cultural terms... Is that the kind of the general complexification of culture and society since that time, especially since the, um, because of the, the, these kind of, because of demographic change, because of technological change, because of changes in the way people work, changes in material culture, has meant that the political system which we have, which is really inherited from the 1920s, I mean, essentially, we essentially have a system of representative government which was consolidated at the moment when women got the vote and hasn't been changed in any significant way. Really, it's just it's completely unadapted to, the, to that situation. It, it's, it was a situation, I think if you think about it in simply abstract terms, you have the party political system, the system of party political representation, it presumes that society can be divided up into these huge, relatively homogenous blocks of opinion, who can be assumed that, who can assume that by delegating, um, to a, to a coherent set of representatives, an entire program of government for five years, that they can find themselves adequately represented. And it's a more or less plausible model in, during the age of mass mass culture, you know, mass capital, you know, consumer capitalism. During the era of Henry Ford's, so you can have any color you like as long as it's black. During the era when millions of people are doing very similar jobs, when any woman within a certain age is supposed to within a very broad class range is supposed to be a housewife, where people have these very kind of homogenous cultures. Even then it didn't work that well, but I mean, it was relatively plausible. It's it's just not plausible. If you step back for a moment and think about it in abstract terms, it's not plausible that a culture as complex and as variegated and as mobile as ours, that doesn't have much more complex, much more involved, much more participatory democratic mechanisms, is actually going to be able to translate what people want into actual outcomes, into governmental outcomes. This is is a situation which people like Colin Crouch and myself and others have described as post-democracy. And it's really, it's been in place for a long time now it's kind of wrong to talk about it as a crisis because it's been like this for, for, for 30 years. So this produces, produces a situation where, um, I mean, the responses on the part of political parties are to increasingly, exactly what Zoe described, increasingly to kind of narrow down their sense of what they can do and to see themselves not really as vehicles for the, the, the expression of the democratic will of their constituencies, but as, you know, mach- machines for the, the, the reproduction and circulation of elites. I mean, in the case of the Labour Party. I mean, it's a huge problem. One of the single biggest problems facing the kind of organised left is, the, is that we're living now with the consequences of the, prof- the, the, the professionalisation of the party at the end of the nineteen eighties,
6: mm.
1: when essentially, you know, I'm kind of I'm, I'm, I'm condensing things that happened over a year or so into a tiny little caricature. But you know, people like me got called into when I was a student activist, got called into Walworth Road, said, do "You want to be an MP? If you do, you've got to not have any fun for the next five years." Well, this was like the peak of rave culture. I wasn't. It? <laughs> <laughs> I had other things to do, uh, and that happened to a whole cohort, really. And so the only people left were either evil or very boring. <laughs> um, and so the and this means that this is a really serious problem that there isn't you know, there isn't the talent pool in the party in, in, mm. in the parliamentary leaders' party. Even if even you know even if you had the left project, yeah. you, there isn't anyone there to lead you. You yeah. two you two spend more time much more time than even even than
2: Aaron certainly than me actually interacting with people, Labour insiders, not <laughs> people. people in general, people that's no, true I too. not. Labour insiders, yeah. Labour MPs, people involved in Labour. How do they talk about the kind of stuff? Because presumably they've been presented with this narrative many times by people who are left and them. Oh they understand how the Labour Party supposedly got to be in the place it is. So how do
1: they talk about? No, they don't understand.
4: They're very aggressive. They they're very, very, they're very aggressively self-protective. And it's really strange because you get into a, You get into an argument, for for, example, Um, when Nicola Sturgeon said to Ed Miliband, why don't we, why don't you join forces with me to make a left project against the Tories, it was a kind of intelligent move because she was calling his bluff, but it was also, there was a possibility that she might have meant it. She might actually have thought, why don't we do something together to fight the ideas that we both claim to hate. There was 5% chance that she was actually on the level. Um, and I just said that it wasn't the most radical thing you could have ever said, and I got lots and lots of traffic from people like Jeremy Beecham and you know the left, kind of very old, very old standing, and all the all the Blair lot, John McTernan, shit. Um, really tearing into tearing into her, tearing into her voting record, tearing into me, tearing into the kind of the audacity. So it was—it was just the audacity. How do you get the audacity to not support Labour when we know what we're doing? How do you get the stupidity to believe Nicola Sturgeon when she, remember, voted for the nineteen percent corporation tax in 1989 in the blah branch non blah, you know, very kind of. And what was interesting to me because I don't really care um, is a they have a lot riding on me being completely stupid, not just me, but anybody outside the Labour Party being completely stupid, and they must know that that's not true. And um, B, they are much more allied to each other than they are to their constituents, much more allied. So if you say, if anybody kind of has a housing issue, you get a huge amount of why they're doing a brilliant job before you get any allegiance to the person with a housing issue. They've got a real party-first People second.
1: Yeah, that, I mean that's absolutely right. And I, th- I mean, I think I mean Labour really. I mean Labour was f- first faced with the, the question in the nineteen eighties you know, after the, the breakthrough of the SDP and the Liberals. Labour was, uh, was faced with the question then: you know, Are you going to be a sort of ideological party? But, but accept that you, un, that you have to be part of a kind of plurality of different actors and part of a broader alliance. Or are you just going to forget about having any kind of ideological agenda mm. and just com- be committed to the idea of majority Labour government at all costs? Yeah. And they took, a, there was a very clear decision taken that it was the latter. And that was the condition of possibility for new Labour. And I think in terms of kind of the cult, the internal culture of the Labour Party, I think it's something people often don't really, understand is that you know historically Labour Party members it's still the case today and it was the case 20 years ago are mostly not very ideological their, their kind of relationship to the party is a bit like their relationship to a football team and there comes a point in which they just wanted it to win and they don't really and they're not really committed to an ideological project one way or another um, so you know when Blair came along and said look I've got a project which will persuade Murdoch to back us and will get us into power people went along with it I think, I think Labour is faced with that again. I think it's faced with that choice. I and mean, I think ultimately history is forcing that choice on Labour. It's a question for Labour whether it will have to go down to 15% of the vote before it finally accepts that it can't, it can't build a political project on the basis of majority Labour government. But this has been, I mean, it's really, I think that the situation is describing is partly symptomatic of the fact that really anyone who is now a senior figure in the Labour Party was someone who went, who made a deep and big emotional investment in choosing that, that route. But it's basically it's all about the party it's not, and it's not really about an ideological project. And that's why they're so hostile to Sturgeon because Sturgeon is saying, look, what about an ideological project for social democracy, which is bigger than party? And they've made a very, very deep investment in those people in not going that route, in not doing that. So it's very, very difficult to shape that. It's very difficult.
4: And if you read Alistair Campbell's book, have you read
1: it? Yeah, <laughs> some of it.
4: <laughs> oh, my God. But I mean, he's, he's, so he's written a book. In, on the eve of an election, he writes a book about winners... And he interviews all the winners he can think of. So he's like interviewing boxers. And I mean, it's really weird. It's like weird. Gordon
1: Brown's book about Curry. It's
4: so weird. Like. I mean, it's like the end of the line for any kind of political conviction or belief. He's just interested in winning. And he's really... And, that's, and, and you can you can see a lot in, of the DNA of modern Labour talking to him. Because he's very... That's all he cares about. Hmm. And it's not going to happen.
2: Aaron, is there anything there you want to... Responsive.
3: Not really. I mean, there's an anecdote. I mean, there are some talented people in the Labour Party. Um, most of them are... Not most, not I'm not going to say most. Many of them are humorless and not particularly charismatic. But in terms of intelligence, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of people. I know a guy called... I know Ali Mousavi, smart guy, went to the LSE. Um, and he was working in Ed Millerman's office. Maybe he still is. I think he was one of his top policy guys. And I knew him from a long time ago. And then the student stuff kicks off in 2010. And I remember calling him the day before... <coughs> Day X3, the day before the big one in Westminster, on December the ninth, or maybe two days before. And I went, Ali, this is huge. Ed Miliband has to come. He has to make a big thing on fees. This could be the one issue he can move left on. He's going to get so much of the country. What do you think? Because we used to throw stuff about you know, just chat, chat politics. That's what we love to do. And he goes, come on, Aaron. He's, he's a, a, a Iranian-British, but he has a kind of weird American drawl." And he was like... Um, Come on, Aaron, it's nonsense, you're wasting your time. What are you doing? This is ridiculous, you're an idiot, and so on and so forth. And then he goes, My God, this is a news night. There's a big feature on it. This must be really important. <coughs> tell me, like, tell me a bit more about what's going on. And I was like, This guy, you know, across my heart, this guy's one of the smartest people Labour had under 30. And that's that's his that's how he's engaging with reality. The reality of 30,000 people on the streets without that formal organisation brokering a demo mm, yeah. going to Parliament Square many of whom were kids in FE and this, this is the smartest young person I met in the Labour Party saying this there's a problem um, so yeah. yeah
4: yeah
2: yeah yeah we'll come back to you in a second Mary, when yeah. we talk about change but this is more it's not surprising that you don't have an historical relationship with the Labour Party I was that's, a member never, yeah you were yes mm. that's right before, yeah um, how before
3: yeah
5: well yeah yeah okay till
3: 2010
2: yeah. okay yeah but you two, I think, do have historical relationships with this never Jeremy, never as never long as I've known you, 20 years party. now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you. And you've <laughs> been trying to forge relationships between the intellectual left and the mainstream left and the party at various times with various degrees of intensity all that time. But you're both talking now like you've given up
1: on the party. I think not, I've not completely given up. I mean, to be fair, in, in those terms, things are much better now than they have been throughout that period. I mean, it's an important point so everyone's already gestured towards this is the first time since the 1984 there's been 31 years that the direction of travel is to the left rather mm. than to the right from where they were before so that i mean that is not the problem the problem i, mean, I think labor and it's true and also, I, mean, I think the labor manifesto is quite impressive i think it's quite mm. good. it's a good document they've come up with some really good ideas that that would be really serious you know if they implement things like this national investment bank that's a serious blow to kind of the power of finance capital um, so it's, it's a good programme it's more that, that there's no way they're going to be able to implement it unless they can accept they can only really do so as part of an ecology of, of, of other, that includes other actors, that includes mm-hmm. the, the Green Party and the SNP and what I'm pessimistic about is their ability to do that mm-hmm. the other thing that's really changed in the past year is one of the things Aaron talked about that I just want to underline the historical significance of I mean it's not only that I've been doing for 20 years, I've also been you know, <laughs> doing like, uh, street activism and hanging around with anarchists and depending on what audience I'm talking to, I always say something different. What I always say to the activists is, you have, I'm sorry, but you have to accept the, the empirical reality that historically no one gets, you don't get anywhere in this country if you don't win the argument in the Labour Party. So you don't have to win it from inside, you have to win it. And what's happened in Scotland is for the first time since the formation of the Labour Party, a kind of a left cause has essentially won something. Against the Labour Party, outside the Labour Party, now that's really significant, and it does mean. And, and what are the long-term consequences of that? I mean, nobody knows. The Labour leadership haven't got a clue what to do about it. But also the SNP, frankly, I don't think they know what to do about it either, because they've, they've got a big, they have quite a big constituency of people who, who want them to be a kind of UK social democratic party with a special interest in Scotland. And they've got others who want independence, and they want others who are just nationally. So no one knows. No one knows where that is going. But that is a historical break, and I think. I mean, I hope they can. I hope Labour can. And and I would, I would like to see it happen. I think sooner or later, Labour will do actually what I'm saying. It's just a question of whether they do it, you know, once the vote has collapsed to the point where only the, only the, only Manchester and London are still voting for it. What's your model for how that happens? Because the thing that joins all
2: three of you on this panel is that you're all invested in one way or another with collective, the collective, with collective politics, with collective action. Mm. and with action that isn't directed from the top, isn't directed from the party. You seem not to believe in that at all anymore in your book, no. sorry. But, Jeremy, no, you've been yeah, thinking about really... these things a long time. What would how, be, how what would be the sh- amount of mechanism? How does mechanism? this shift happen? Yes, okay.
1: exactly. What would be the mechanism? Well, I mean, if there's, a me- if there's some... I mean, there are lots of mechanisms, and the ones that Zoe's talking about and Aaron's talking about are more important. Okay, so I'll say in a minute exactly what I think should happen in the Labour Party. But Of course, Mm -hmm. I think we'd all agree. I mean, any kind of examination of the history of the 20th century shows that ultimately, you know, what goes on in parties, what goes on in elections are really just symptoms of changes in the wider balance of forces. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really, I mean, elections tell you something about what is going on underneath them. They don't make things happen. But I think, in t- and I think so, really, I think that uh, ultimately the mechanism would be the, you know, the kind of pr- success of projects, like, you know, like the ones Aaron's you know, writing about, for example, the success of, you know, and the ones that Zoe's talking about, the success of some form of a social and political movement or various forms of social and political movement for sort of democratisation. Now, I mean, in terms of specifically what would have to happen around the Labour Party and the Labour leadership, is you would have to have a Labour leadership that basically accepts the account of people like me which is that parliamentary democracy in its given form now is just incapable of delivering even the kind of socioeconomic project they want. And it needs radical reform of the kind, which Podemos are calling for in mm-hmm. Spain, for example, of the kind which has been implemented in Latin class in Latin America, of the kind, which is part of the, the long history of the left going back to the 19th century. You'd have to have a Labour leader who said, all right, fair enough. We get the analysis. You know, we can't, we're not going to rebuild. We can't administer social democracy from Whitehall. Um, and we're not, you know, it's not unimaginable. Now, what would they, you know, what would they then do? Well, for example, they would, for example, do things like not laugh at Aaron when he says that they should go out and, you know, uh, it's, they should, um, you know, be out on the streets with the students. And I think, I mean, there is, there is a kind of t- halt. They do get this. They get this. That's what Arnie Graff was all about: was the fact they do sort of get, in principle, in theory, that they need to be part of a movement and they need to connect with movements and build movements in order to effectuate social change. But I'm going to come um. to Aaron to talk about social movements in a second, but Zoe, first of all, in your book, mm. there's a tension,
2: I think, that runs all the way through the book when you're talking about the we and how we mm. get it together. Mm. Sometimes it feels like you're talking about working around the state and around the policy apparatus. I think with healthcare, you think there are possibilities yeah. for collective action there. With housing, not so much. You're very pessimistic about the possibility of anything happening there unless there are decisions made by those in power. Um But how do you, how did you come out of this project thinking about how change happens?
4: That's, yeah, I mean, I'm not actually pessimistic. It's really weird. A lot of, whenever I, whenever I go to anything or anybody reads anything I've done, they always say they're depressed, whereas (laughs) I think, I think I've really cheered them up. (laughs) Um, So I've obviously not, I'm actually, there's something I'm not getting across. I'm not sure what it is, but um I don't, I'm not pessimistic about the housing thing. I, my kind of abiding feeling is that we've been here before. You know, we've been in a situation where very few people owned all the land, and nobody had anything, and nobody had anything they could do about it before. We were in the situation at the end of the 19th century. So, the idea that we don't have the ingenuity to get out of it collectively, I don't, I wouldn't hold with it at all. The problem with the party structure, which I always find, if everybody in the Labour Party was a complete dick then you could just move on the problem with them is some of them are really deep thinking people and so the, and, and it's their tension in a way that that kind of stifles what you're doing because for every Rachel Reeves there's an Alison McGovern for every th- Liam Byrne there's a Lisa Nandy and you you always think well maybe I can go this far with you and then you remember why you can't um the question we're really asking here, which I often don't realise is being asked until I realise, is, is are we looking for a new party or are we looking for a takeover of this party? And I, my feeling is that it doesn't hugely matter because the, the, the momentum isn't going to come from the leader anyway. The momentum isn't going to come from the person, who the kind of messianic figure anyway. So whether it's the leader of the Labour Party or a kind of or we decide to have a UK Podemos. I don't think... I'm not sure how much that matters.
2: Aaron, where is change going to come from, if it's going to come?
4: <coughs> yeah. Um, well, I
3: agree with Zoe in terms of it's not... I don't, I don't think that's the central question. Do we need a new party? Do we... I think, I think Jeremy's right that Labour nev- is never going to govern ever again, probably, by majority in the UK. That's a, I mean, that's a big claim. You Think about it. I can't really see it happening again. Um, so any, any government moving forward, and I think further devolution likely, that could extend to various parts of England, federalism, etc. Who knows what, by slothing question, be resolved, etc, etc. But I think that's a fair claim. Um, and so, yeah, I agree that that's the central, central question of do we start a new party together. I think probably both will happen, right? I think the Greens yeah, will do yeah. incredibly well. I think oh, yeah, the Greens, the Greens are going to get maybe four or five second places this time, maybe 10, 15, five years time. That's a really good launch pad, mm-hmm. as Labour kind of crumbles to get... <laughs> a real base of seats, uh, looking 2025, that's the long game. You talk to smart Green Party activist Adam Ramsey. He's talking 10, 15 years. Yeah, he's not yeah. talking next month. Yeah. you know. Um, and I think that's that's interesting because you don't get many people in Labour talking in those terms, actually. No, um,
4: they're, they're
3: really scared. Yeah. So I think how do we get one? I think some of scholarship is interested in, or was interested in, it's over now, thank, thankfully, um, is interested in about the intersection between social movements, technology, party politics. If you look at the United States, what's happened in the last 10 years, great scholar, a guy called Rasmus Kleist Nielsen, wrote a book called Ground Wars, Personalised Communications. And he says it's not about big party machines with loads of resources winning, winning these, winning these uh, races anymore. It's about what he calls kind of, I know this sounds very flaky, but there's some good empirical work <laughs> behind it, electoral assemblages, which include you know, various interest groups, highly connected networked individuals. Look at Owen Jones. This guy's got 250,000 followers on Twitter. You know, this guy is in him as a resource. You know, that's really significant. So,
4: how can we monetize him?
3: uh, (laughs) Well, he's doing very well. Penguin have found a way. But if you if you think about the ontology of of the kinds of assemblages that get behind single issue campaigns, etc. You know, and the, the single big takeaway from the emergence of the digital environment is this. Which is actually organisational possibilities for political endeavours. We're expanding at every level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not about oh, we need this one organisation. It's going to do everything. Mm-hmm. If you want to get rid of page three, maybe you need a blog, a Twitter hashtag, one full-time press officer. Do you know what I mean? And that's an organisational uh, form appropriate to that endeavour. Then there's another endeavour. How do we get out of the EU? You know, are the, 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 the very, and I think that's ex- I think what the what the digital environment does is expands the kinds of actors which are appropriate to kind of you know, the you know, multiplicity, the infinity of endeavours that humans, humans try to undertake collectively.
4: I mean, but my problem, I mean, I agree with you, and then, and I've heard really good arguments for why, you know, an online union, which you don't even have to have a job to join, is going to be a, like, massive force for good and force for change. My problem with I don't think that's a good idea, but yeah, Okay, no, but we'll, well, tell me why not, because otherwise I'll just keep on peddling it. Um, <laughs> but
0: um,
4: my problem with the kind of s- mobilising around a single issue is that, you know, it is, you're exactly right, it's really, really effective, the the problem is that a lot of the a lot of the circumstances that create the issues are the same organized thing. So the same organized financialization is screwing up the health service at the same time as the housing market. at the same time as um, outsourcing. At the same time as you know, they, you know, so you've got an organized force coming from here, mm. and the single issues seem to kind of it seems to concede the issues it doesn't really care about. Mm. And you need something much more coordinated to
3: do that, the big stuff. I mean, I'll just clarify what I said. I mean, it's not just single-issue campaigns, right? So if you think the two big spin doctors, the two parties, they're not even in these parties. Linton Crosby and David Axelrod. They're not even British. One's Australian, the Lizard of Oz, one's an American. So if you're thinking about how our election campaigns changed, it's not about drawing on the resources of some mass membership party. No. It's about... Blue State Digital, Linton Crosby, the, you know these activists, these celebrities, and it's about creating assemblages around. In this, in this, in this context, obviously the, the, the objective is to form a majority in Parliament, but that could be a multiplicity of things, and that's what I'm saying. So, the, the kind of ontology of, of political parties and their relation yeah, to yeah, achieving yeah. things, and it's not just about campaigns as one element, right? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, big Wait, money, consultants, celebrities.
4: Would you agree that you need to? You can find it. You can find a kind of. A multiplicity of ways to, to do things that an old school party would have done, but there's something about the old school party presenting a large-scale opposition to a large enemy that actually we can't patch together. I don't know. Uh, I mean,
3: okay, empirically, there's just no example of it. I mean, there's just no example of it. I mean, maybe the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, they didn't do too well, right, as a mass membership <laughs> yeah. organisation. I mean, yeah, there's yeah. no... In, in right. the global north, there's no empirical example of that. I mean, I don't, I'm not familiar with Latin America. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but, I mean, that's my, that's my inclination. There's a question
2: which is moving between the both of you here yeah. about how, say, single-issue campaigns or small groups or hubs or whatever kind, mm. how a broader movement or an electoral movement, a mass movement mm. of any kind emerges, coalesces from that kind of action. Do you have a model for thinking about how that happens? Because, after all... What you're all looking for, really, is a transformation of mass consciousness. That's the only thing that's going to do this in the end. How does that,
4: Uh, even theoretically,
1: get going? (laughs) Well, there is a model in Podemos. I mean, Podemos is the model of that happening. I mean, the conditions Doesn't it require
2: crisis of a much more pronounced kind than even we've experienced? Yeah, it may may
1: well do.
4: Somebody said about Podemos, this geographer said that the, the crisis... What was so successful about the crisis was that it was it was really pan, it really worked across the classes. So it it was it went right up into kind of repossessions at a, a, a kind of upper middle class level, and I think that's what we've got in common, right? Everybody's going to be screwed by the same mechanism eventually.
1: Well, I mean, I mean, Paul's raised the question, and I think, I mean, when I was making my notes for today, the thing, one of the things I was going to say, you know, the single biggest danger for the left is that this won't happen, and that nothing in much is going to change at the next election or for the foreseeable future. I think, I mean, the, you know, my answer to your initial question, actually, what are the biggest, what are the processes driving things? Well, the biggest one is just capitalism. I mean, capitalism is not as a structure, but as a process, as the process of financial elites trying to keep accumulating capital and hold on to their position. And I think... You know, they've they've done really they've really done well they've really played it well the past five five years they got everybody absolutely ter- i mean remember five years ago we were told there was going to be four million unemployed like the, the level the level of austerity that was threatened was much worse than what's actually happened which has made them been able to get away with some evil punitive attacks on some of the most vulnerable sections of the po- population but broadly speaking it hasn't really provoked it hasn't provoked the kind the level of resistance that we would have, that we would like. And I think the biggest da- the biggest danger for us is that that is that just carries on. Um, I think on the other hand I would say I think it's always an analytical mistake I think to think that it's it's think that it's the experience of suffering that really radicalizes people. I don't think it is. I mean it wasn't it wasn't the crisis really that produced paramos. Yeah. It was the movement that came out of it. Yeah. There are plenty of places there's been crises like that the movements like that haven't arisen. It's the experience of empowerment, It's the experience of their own collective potential that actually radicalizes people. And I think I mean some of the things Aaron's are talking about I think to me speak to yeah, there's a much broader, a much broader situation in which people do have actually, we all do, everybody who spends, you know, hours on Facebook has a certain experience of kind of collective assemblage and, and you know, and create, you know, creative collaboration and in this new, um, context. And I think we don't know whether that stuff can be activated, whether all that potent, that set, that can be turned into a kind of, uh, a, a form of radical consciousness. We don't yet know because we, hardly anybody has really tried, and certainly in contexts like Britain, we haven't much tried. But I think, you know, I think, um, it could be. I also think we don't know what the tipping point is going to be with the just complete lack of legitimacy in the democratic system in this country, which we've all talked about and we all acknowledged. Yeah. I mean, it, there might not be one. You know, it might be that people sort of continue to accept, you know, what I call the sort of the post, you know, the post democratic neoliberal settlement. Which we all know we don't really have democracy anymore. And we all know that nobody really wanted the privatisation of the railways. Nobody even really wanted the privatisation of British Gas. Like, never mind everything subsequent. But as long as homeowners, which is still the majority of the population, you know, get treated like kings and just get everything they want and get to you know spend up, you know, get loads of cheap holidays and virtually get paid to live in a house, which is. Um, then we just keep going along with it. I mean, it might be, that might be the case, or there might be a tipping point. There might be a point at which the, the, the fact that we're just not represented, that we just don't have any say in any of this stuff anymore, and it's become increasingly transparent that no matter who we vote for, they're going to do the same thing they were going to do anyway. Yeah, yeah. There might well be a tipping point and that, that would be the, you know, that would be the kind of crisis and it would be, it wouldn't, but it wouldn't be just an experience of deprivation. It would be a kind of mismatch between the, the sense of potency that we all experience in, in some aspects of this digital, digitized environment and the fact that that potency doesn't have any form of expression at the level of government and politics. And that could happen. I mean, Neil Dawson keeps saying this. I think he's right. Really, we, that could happen any moment. It could, you know, and it wouldn't be that surprising. You and
4: sound like a gnome.
1: Erin, <laughs> <laughs> I think you wanted to I don't know, I don't quite, But, go, go on, on, yeah, I mean, Very,
3: very, very quickly, you could say Podemos gets its activist base from the Quincean, the 15M movement, a movement that starts on May 15th in Spain, one week oh. before a general election. That was organised, the M was organised by 25 activists. January 2011, you've got several small groups, mostly net-based, no bricks-and-mortar presence, no full-time membership,
0: very little money,
3: and I think the digital environment allows, and the yeah. thing is when a, when, a, when a technology is so mundane it's difficult to discern what's, what has it changed um, and I think something like the Sam was impossible without the digital environment um, and that's one thing, and then I want to say a second point, which is you're saying about, you know, the crisis over here wasn't as bad as it was in Spain and Italy, no, Spain and well, bad Italy, Spain and Greece yeah, yeah. Um, if you look at, okay, so the, the big, the big sort of what do you see, what's the crisis, Has does it manifest itself in southern Europe? unemployment, specifically youth unemployment, right? Here it's massive wage repression. Mm. People in their 20s, on an hourly basis, have seen wages fall by 12% since 2010. Yeah. You know, we'll raise a median household... Yeah, you
1: know, I, I don't disagree with that. I was just saying, I think there's a... The, you know, so far they've got away with that. Yeah. They've got away with that... At a, but you when don't need the, to lay the,
3: people the... off if, if you've got declining wages, and that's the way... We've, we've had, you know, yes. we've had stagnant yeah. productivity yeah. since 2008. That is there's no model for that in the world where that's meant to happen and I think that's actually more frightening for a capitalist in terms of the reproduction of capital.
6: Yeah.
3: Stagnant productivity is a lot more worrying than high unemployment. You go, Fuck, this is a big problem. If you're like a Deutsche Bank economist, you don't sorry, excuse my French. You don't care less about high unemployment. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it's yeah. good. Fantastic it mean, we'll really,
4: is. really interesting you should say it because Rosie Rogers said this is she's at Greenpeace now but she used to be at Compass. Um, and she said even people I know she 's like twenty seven I think she said even people I know who aren 't political at all are really, really angry and i thought that's quite that's quite interesting because when i was twenty seven people who weren 't political weren't angry they were all taking e they weren 't angry <laughs> um, but there was a kind of i think they re- i think exactly as you say the the, rep- the wage repression and the housing situation mm. for people under thirty is much is ex- is, de- is accelerating towards badness much faster mm. than Could the commentariat realise this? Certainly. And when you say this, when you say this in The Guardian, you you do get treated like a bit of a freak.
1: I I hope that's true. I hope that's true. But I think five years ago, people like everybody was saying this is definitely all going to blow up before, before the next election. And it hasn't done. And I think the extent to it... I mean, I think we mustn't underestimate their capacity to manage this situation. Absolutely. And I think yeah. that's, that, that's the real deal. I say, you're right. I mean, but I think, you know, I, I'm very worried when I hear people say... I'm worried when I hear people say, oh, they're going to take back... They're, they're going to cut back welfare spending to the 1930s levels. I mean, they're clearly not going to do that. They're going to say they're going to do that to impress the bond markets. Mm. But they're not going to do it, because partly, like, well, partly because that would re- reduce productivity even more. But those... Are, Reasons, And I think that does... They do put us in a very difficult position. This is one of the very clever moves they played, like the right in this country. It does put us in a very difficult yeah, position yeah, yeah. because if we say, oh, it's all going to be terrible and then it isn't as bad as it, as we said it was going to be, then we look stupid. And if we don't say it's all going to be terrible, then we we, we, we just do. induce complacency. So I think... I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't have a pat answer. No, well, they, so. I mean, they, they, we,
4: it, it's constantly... I'm, I'm constantly finessed by by them because they often catastrophise the situation as it stands and the only way to, to resist the change, whether it's academisation fr- and free schools or privatisation of the NHS, the only way to resist their agenda is to say it's actually not that bad. That, is that Nobody joins a rallying cry of it's actually not that bad even when it's not.
2: <laughs> Does a progressive politics in the short term have to be an anti-capitalist politics?
1: Yes. <laughs> it doesn't have to be anti-business I think the left historically is faced with a really a kind of str- a strategic dilemma that we don't know how really we haven't even begun to address In a, both Marxism and Fabian socialism shared the assumption that the petty bourgeois was going to have disappeared by the end of the 20th century so it didn't matter that they were hegemonized by the right consistently actually what's happened is the petty bourgeois has both expanded and its culture has changed and the only people who've really tried to recruit them have been the neoliberals. Um, I mean, arguably, you know, initially, I mean, there's, there's an art, this, I've sort of done academic work on this. So very briefly, I mean, you could say the kind of the emergence of, um, sort of knowledge workers as a kind of new, I'm not going to say in Marxist terms, they're not a new class, but they're a kind of a, a new, um, Sort of section of the economy at sort of at the end of the 60s initially is kind of part of the impetus for things like 1968 initially gives rise to this expansive democratic demands and the argument made by people like Boltansky and chapello which is quite persuasive is actually the kind of the shift to a capitalism of high of high levels of individualism of consumerism of post-fordism is partly an attempt to kind of capture those mm-hmm. desires and to and to recruit that strategically crucial section so i think we have to i think we probably have to find a language and an analysis which makes a, a much clearer distinction between the kind of commercial activity, which there's so a petty bourgeois historically engaged in and they still engaging, in and capitalism proper. Capital accumulation. I think we really, now I mean, to be, that sort of, I mean, Ed sort of had a go at that a bit with the stuff around predators and things. But I think we could be much clearer. Um, but yeah, and I think. I think, I think we have to be quite open minded about what forms of economic activity, you know, might be good, might be socially productive, might be innovative, might be creative, and absolutely implacable that there is that the big organizations whose only, uh, whose only end is capital accumulation are always destructive. Always. There's no, there's no kind of two ways about that. Um, yeah. Sorry. I've got
4: nothing, I've got nothing against capitalism in the sense of, investing a capital amount in a productive thing and then either losing it if it doesn't happen or not losing it if it does happen i've got nothing against civic capitalism and that's where it kind of that's where i often i often part ways with my with my fellow travelers because i don't you know i mean i really i think the left often shuts itself off kind of financial people people are kind of financially innovative in the kind of peer-to-peer way and in the crowdfunding way and there's a kind of inherent distrust certainly in the Labour Party actually <laughs> and in the Green Party, there's a real distrust of anybody who's actually who has any profit motive, there's the real distrust of anybody who has a kind of separation of capital and productivity, so you know, even the act of saying well I've got the capital and you've got the idea <coughs> is in itself untrustworthy and I don't, I don't agree with all that
2: um,
3: I think if you were to say, who are the most important people to persuade globally in terms of a, a new global political economy? i say the two most important groups are Chinese working class, East Asian working class, and Silicon Valley. And if they change their minds, anything's possible, right? If you look at someone like Elon Musk, founder of eBay, uh, Tesla Motors, this guy's the CEO of the biggest solar energy company in the world, it's just unbelievable, sort of, you know, Da Vinci of the 21st century. And... If, if you could start saying to people like that, look, the dreams, the aspirations you have, the objectives you have, are only really plausible, if we're being honest, in a post-capitalist society, right? <laughs> I think that's where you are looking at quite interesting propositions. And I think the problem is, for most people older than myself, I'm not, you know, that's, that's just historical norm. There was the USSR, there's mm-hmm. this shadow. When we talk about communism, people think turnips, they think scarcity, they think poverty, mm. right? But if you're saying, look, the, the whole point of communism was the abolition of exchange value, moving to a post-scarcity society, that's where a lot of hooked, like, joined up thinking with Silicon Valley, West Coast, kind of entrepreneurial kind of rhetoric. I think it, it's interesting, right? Because when they talk about why they do what they do, it's almost always about flourishing, their personal flourishing and about facilitating the flourishing of others, what Marx called organic living labour. They are not interested in a, a society about you know, selling your labour onto a market, working. Mm. And I think there's an interesting possibility there. And I think... Yeah, if I, if you if, I was, if you were to say Aaron, if you could address any one group, yeah, it'd be a toss-up between the Chinese working class and Silicon Valley sort of tech CEOs, sort of PhDs from IT and so on. Yeah. yeah,
1: I think that's an excellent analysis. I always I always say to my students, looking the post-socialist utopia, we're probably still going to let Steve Jobs live in the Golden Palace, <laughs> but like he's going to be, we're, you know, we're just not going to let we're just not going to let you know Wall Street like har- har- harvest all the profits that he generates. I think that's completely right, and I think. In sort of Gramscian terms, we're in a context, it happened since the end of the 90s, where, I mean, arguably for the first time, there is a global hegemonic historic block. You know, but, but Gramsci uses the term historic block, which is a kind of coalition of class fractions. And the key class fractions, I mean, as I put it, are, are big tech, Silicon Valley, and finance capital, and venture capital. And if you could disaggregate that, you're right, if you could disaggregate the kind of parasitic element of that, which is finance capital, from the really creative element, which is... That um that uh, which is which is Silicon Valley, then you would really be onto something. I think that, that I think that's right. I mean, and you're right about you're right about the Chinese working class being the other constituency <laughs> because that's, you know, in some ways what happens there is the thing. Again, this is something I've been saying to students for years. You know, in the end, you know, our fates are all going to be decided by how quickly the, chi- the, the Chinese unionise and, and, and at what point they decide they're not going to work. Well, they're uh, not going to work for a pound a day making iPhones well, for us in Well, wages have gone up,
3: I think, four, 500 cents since 2000. They're going up every year. The last couple of years, 11%, 12% year on year. And you're saying about people paid to sit at home, those cheap durables they're buying, those cheap holidays, that whole superstructure is based, yes, on cheap petroleum, which has come back. None of us saw that happening.
1: Yeah, but cheap labor, you're right. And yeah, cheap of labor, right? Yeah, which yeah. is
3: which is definitely not coming back. Um, so, yeah, and there's no next China. They were saying Vietnam, they were talking Bangladesh. Bangladesh, industrial action in Bangladesh two years ago was, was phenomenal. It was incredible, you know? And so, if you're a capitalist, you say, well, where do we go next? Vietnam, Bangladesh, not looking so great anymore. Um, and there's not. 1989, doubling in the global labor market, the Eastern Bloc, China, India. China has 2.6 billion people. You want to repress wages? That's pretty <laughs> right, good, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's one off and that's the thing sometimes we talk to unintelligent advocates of free markets and you say mm-hmm. well look this is not happening. and they just don't really have an answer they say like reshoring or
4: something you know? oh, then they say robots
3: yeah robots <laughs> yeah, oh, then okay. nobody's like, buying the durables anymore oh, yeah. because they're unemployed you know yeah.
2: this is what's interesting yeah. about analysis you're producing there because Jeremy puts it in terms of the future <laughs> for the left of being the disaggregation of technology and capital uh-huh. well the solution to climate change for capitalists would be precisely technology but maintaining that link right
4: I mean the, the climate the, the climate change there's there's so much I I think the first problem for climate change is going to be figuring out how to have that conversation without it immediately becoming climate change versus equality because at the moment it really it that goes really really fast one minute everybody's on the same page
0: the next minute
4: you're on two completely different pages and I don't think that I don't think that tension really exists. I think that all the effort put into protecting very small, very wealthy communities from the ravages of climate change are so manifest that the drive towards more equality, greater equality is kind of unhitchable from the drive towards climate change action. But that's an argument that happens again and again and again. I think, I mean, I agree with Aaron in the sense that I think it's going to crises are going to happen much faster than <laughs> Well, no, actually, not faster than we foresaw, but maybe certainly faster than I kind of um, took into my vision of the future. And you are going to get these crises of kind of you know huge migrant deaths and huge migration, and that's that's already having a massive effect on the way we talk about human rights and human dignity and human value. And I think if we can't clear that hump, it's going to start. The problem is going to start to be. What the point of the left is, if it can't articulate these basic things about the value of human life. And that, I think, is quite urgent now. I don't think that's happening anything like fast enough.
3: Uh, can I just respond to that? I I mean, mean, yeah, of course. The Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre estimates between 150 million, 300 million climate refugees by 2050. Yeah, I mean, I mean and so, And that's another fact we talk about ch- changing the demographics yes. of Europe becoming browner. Yeah. You think, after sub-Saharan Africa, crop yields are going to declined yeah. by one third because of climate change its population has gone double by 2050
2: yeah. right
3: so you've got one continent it's got these crunches maybe security crunches the end of American empire problems with water Sunnah first city in the world in Yemen it's going to run out of water in 2017 half the population is under 15 years old
2: yeah, yeah, right
3: yeah. Where, where do you think those people go you know right? and they, you know, they may go to neighbouring countries which are unstable I'm not saying that as some racist or I'm half iranian there are Iran and Turkey the two stable countries in the region nowhere else is um <coughs> So you know, where do those people go? They're going to go to they're going to go to Europe, and unless the European Union, like you said, challenges actually, I think the fundamental post-war discourse on rights, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. because
3: yeah. unless Europe has a joined-up kind of program about what it's going to do with, specifically with regards to climate change refugees, um, and that that's aligning amazingly with the collapse of American Empire, <coughs> then I mean that's you, yeah, it's catastrophic. Mean, the stuff we're seeing right now it was 900 deaths last Sunday, wasn't it? Yeah, the most recorded deaths of, of undocumented migrants in the Mediterranean in you know, no. living memory. Um, that's going to become a daily event, really. And I don't think that's to say that people are scaremonger. I don't think that is actually. That's quite conservative to start saying those kinds of things. You know, Ethiopia by 2050, think, over 200 million people. Nigeria over 400 million people. These are huge numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, this, Europe did this 150 years ago. Yeah. You know, and it took us colonising the rest of the world, taking our surplus populations there, taking their resources. How do you do it in a world where you? got... I mean, it doesn't seem plausible. The whole thing about how does the world support 10 billion people under the capitalism? It doesn't. You know, it's <laughs> simple as that, you
2: know. Yeah, yeah. That's
3: not an ideological claim. It's
2: a... I, n- I knew we'd reach apocalypse Sorry. sooner or later. no, 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 no. <laughs> it's a good moment so though to to open things up to yeah, the audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, take. We'll see how many questions there are. We'll take them either singly or in groups. <coughs> one in front here. Wait for the microphone and then.
0: Um, we go. Oh, okay. Thanks. Um, uh, moving away from the last, really bleak. Uh, moments. Uh, I wonder if the, if the panel doesn't see more hope in the domestic political system. I mean, uh, in the agri, if you think back to the 19th century, 1832 to 1918, I mean, it was a long, slow, but, uh, uh, transformation under the pressure of contingencies. All we've been talking about are, are contingencies that are going to bear in on the system. So the system has a historic record of transformation. Mu- multi-party model is out there. I watched, um, Andrew Marr last Sunday, I think, uh, what's his name, uh, Milliband ducked and weaved on yeah, the question yeah. of his uh, alliance with Sturgeon. So you know, I mean, it was a very pessimistic take from the panel, but um, I wonder if, if there isn't room for a little bit more optimism. And Then coming to Aaron's point, I mean, I was just jotting down here the the single issue movements and and the variety of them in just in the last few years, gay marriage, you know, Margaret Hodge on tax change. Um, uh plain cigarette packaging uh the scottish mobilization and then two 38 degrees one's forest campaign nhs campaign all of them successful all of them bearing out your point there's a lot of underlying um potentials in 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 the system so i guess i'm trying to well so, um, reasons
2: for optimism in, 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 in a sense is the is the broadest question
0: where should we start with that when you start with
2: jeremy I think
1: we, we did artic- we did articulate a lot of reasons for optimism. I think yeah, no, I think we're in it's a highly unstable system. We're in a far from equilibrium system. And this stuff could um change at any time. I mean I mean you're right. I mean it's true. I mean the Labour manifesto includes a constitutional convention, partly because they, they, they listen to people like me banging on about how the system's completely broken. Um and it's possible. Yeah, it's possible. It's perfectly possible, it's possible it is possible that um the SNP are just gonna to have to for is gonna force them to accept a kind of pluralist system. So yeah, um yeah, I did, I it's I at the moment it's completely unknowable. But I think um I mean I'm never I'm not I mean I'm not yeah I'm <clears throat> I'm not pessimistic in the long term. I never am, you know? I think these things do, I mean th- but I think I also I would ha- I have to be honest, like in the short right now, either at the kind of cultural level or the political level, you know, we don't see the scale of mobilization that, that builds up that historically builds up to the kind of thing you're talking about. It might start tomorrow and we're all going to keep trying to make it start. Um, I think that, for, I think the, I mean, I think the examples are really good. I mean, the example, you know, if you're talking about things, I mean like the relationship between democratic reform, technological change and institute and um, workers movements. I mean, you can think about the history that leads from the chartists to, You know, right up to 1945, but that's 150 years nearly. I think, I think that will be accelerated by, you know, the new technology. But um, I think in all probability, we're at the, in a relatively early stage of, of a kind of historical phase that begins with the cybernetic revolution in the 50s and 60s, which initially has enabled, you know, the uh, capitalist class to re, re entrench power. It was in the danger, it was in danger of losing and i don't know how long it will take us to develop the forms of organization necessary um to kind of reestablish democracy as a kind of yeah you know, um i don't know how long it will take and you're right there are all kinds of reasons to think it might happen very very soon but historical precedent suggests it might take quite a long time so but yeah it might well it might well it's not like we're going to give it's not like i'm going to stop trying it's not like i'm going to leave the labor party anytime soon i don't it's not like um and I think you're right. I mean, it's true. Well, also, I'll just reiterate what I said earlier. For the first time since 1984, the Labour, the Labour leadership is moving leftwards, not moving rightwards. And that's the first time it's in 31 years that you can say that's true. Well, maybe you could have, you could have said it for the past three years, so, but it's the first time in 30 years. The Labour Party leadership. I mean, you New know, Labour people forget. ready. Right? New Labour wasn't just. It didn't. It wasn't just right wing from the beginning. It was. It started off really right wing, and it got more and more right wing. So, like Labour, and it, so I think that is that. Is, I mean, if, if there is something to be optim- optimistic about in terms of the local political context, it is that. And I think um, I'll leave it at that. Sorry.
4: Sorry. Sorry. I mean, my my anxiety about things like Margaret Hodge. My anxiety about the uh, gay wedding thing as a kind of sign of positive change is that I think you're often given these concessions which seem really, really incredible, but they make no actual incursions into the way power is moving. And I don't think gay marriage does make any incursions into the way power is moving. I don't, and I think a lot of identity issues are the same. You know, I don't think equal pay really made any... Incur- it, made, it made women's lives better, but it didn't make... It didn't actually change the direction of travel, so I would kind of, I would be, I mean, my, and and then the kind of the, the ancillary problem to that is that you take you take them as wins, and then and then it kind of takes the wind out of your sails because you you think so so the tax evasion issue you think well Margaret Hodge is talking about it in this way which no, nobody ever used to talk about it. And businesses, when you talk to them now, say it's not the same as it was 10 years ago. We're not trying to avoid every single bit of tax, some tax we think we should pay. And and somehow the kind of change of temperature makes you think that that's all you that's as far as you're going to get. And it's actually and nothing really that significant has changed in the way in the kind of amounts of tax that are paid by the various groups of society that pay them. So that's that's the I mean that's the downside. I, I'm really my, I'm really optimistic because historically, yeah, movements can be traced over hundred and fifty years, but all the movements that we're talking about, the you know, the SNP, Pure Syriza, they happened in a year. You know, S the SNP got that surge. A year from when the, Vatican, the kind of radical in Scotland and Commonweal started, but they must happened in a year. They were having their gatherings in 2011, but they didn't set up as a party until 20 end of 2013. So, I I, I think actually, we you know something might change, and we might look back and say this change was seeded in 1979, or this change was seeded in you know in the 50s. But it's it still when it happens, will happen really fast.
2: Aaron, reasons for optimism.
4: Yeah, no,
3: I'm very. I was going to say, despite the, the, the final comment, I am very optimistic. Just, it's a huge challenge, which I, I actually do think that the global north will meet. Actually, I don't think that, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think it would fly in the face of four or five hundred years of reasonable progress with regards to the formation of a humanist culture. I don't think that mm. that can't happen. Right, simple as that. Um, I was going to say, with regards to you know the, the Conservative Party haven't won a majority. Everyone knows this, right. I don't need to say. Conservative Party haven't won a majority in this country since 1992. The Democrats, in terms of actual votes, have won five of the last six elections in the US. Um, if you So if you think about the kind of overall trajectory of politics just in the mainstream, mm-hmm. something really significant has changed. If you look at the Republicans now, you've got a US election in 2016. Because you're saying about, look, we've got movements to the left of the Labour Party, and we've got the most left-leaning Labour leader in living memory, right? Well, since, let's say, Michael Foote. Yeah, Michael Foote, right? Um, and actually, you've got a very similar dynamic going on in the United States right now. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama, yes, he didn't close one time. Yes, there are drones to strikes in Yemen. But this is the most liberal Democrat leader since, I don't know, let's say Jimmy Carter or something, right? Long, long, long time. And yet he's being outflanked <laughs> on the left of his own party now by somebody like, say, Liz Warren. Don't write her off, by the way. Don't write her off. Um, you know, Bill de Blazo in uh, New York. You almost got Troy Garcia, almost won in Chicago. Almost beat Ram Emanuel. This guy was the insider yeah. of the Democrat Party. He missed it insider. Mayor One Percent almost lost. Right? He he didn't lose because Black Chicagoans didn't vote for a Latina. That's why he didn't lose, which is a tragedy in itself. Right? So those dynamics actually go beyond <laughs> just Britain, which I think make them particularly uh, interesting. Um, your point about single shoe, I think uh, that's the thing, right? Again, it's that mon- the mandate of something. It's so often, so frequent that you just take it for granted. I absolutely agree with you. Another one is Stella Crici on payday lending. Payday lending, and just, all of a sudden, was like, yeah, we can't do this anymore. Mm. And while I agree there are limits to that, I think that's a new dynamic, and I think, you know, that's, uh, that's new and that's going to only grow. And then, finally, to, to, to build on what you said in terms of that's limited, if I think about the stuff that Navarro is involved in, it's still a very small project and so on, but it's about the intersection of media, politics, collective action, and it's about how do you, the kinds of these single-issue things, or new parties, how do you infuse them with a kind of protocol... or a a set of ideas which are beyond this and I think that's actually the fundamental that's the fundamental question that intellectuals should be asking of themselves speaking to Adam Ramsey he said that Young Greens Young Greens there's 17,700 Young Greens now Mm. more than Labour students which is just amazing you think Mm. about students organising an anti anti-fees demo Young Greens are a really big organisation he said the Young Greens they have three news sources he said they have Vice, Open Democracy and Navarra I was like great and he said they're doing like yeah, there's this big thing on fully automated luxury communism, right? Said they're all talking about this. is fantastic. This is wonderful, right?
1: <laughs> what is fully automated?
3: Well, good
1: question. <laughs> what it says on the <laughs> team.
3: Good question. Um, and so I think that's a really important thing. So you've got okay. So that you want you're saying reasons for uh, uh, optimism. On the one hand, you say there's challenges. You know, really huge challenges. What cloud and heaven? Two big scholars of social movements in the 1960s would call them. They'd say this is the political opportunity structure. Is opportunities. And actually left movements or progressive movements always respond to the opportunity structure. So why do you have the SNP in Scotland? Why don't you have something like that in England? And of course a lot of kind of really stupid analysis goes, well the English people are stupid, mm-hmm. the English people are racist. That's obviously not true. <laughs> you know, it's not true. That's just not true. The reason is in Scotland you have a devolved parliament, there are lower costs of entry to a new form, you know, a new organisation getting some kind of foothold in there. You know, so or you look at for instance the rise of Podemos or Syriza it's because they don't have first past the post elections. Mm. So that opportunity structure is really, really, really significant. So when I, we talk about problems, I think we should be talking about opportunities, going back mm. to my initial point about the four things that are going to define the next century. If the left doesn't meet them, if the Labour Party isn't going to talk about mm. you know, demographic transformation in this country, in Europe, if it's not going to talk, it's an irrelevant organisation. That's not to sort of be blase and just dismiss them. Because these are, I think these are four trends that are so, so crucial to where our species is going in the next 50 years that Mm. we have to meet them. And if we don't, we're irrelevant. And then you see ground to the the far right, although, thankfully, that's not really happening in many places.
2: Okay. Questions? We've got three here. I'll take gentleman over there by the bookshelf.
5: Thanks. Um, I I wrote wrote a note so I could look reasonably (laughs) articulate um, in between tweeting and listening. I wrote a note. Um, Aaron, firstly, I'm glad you, uh, began to flesh out your fully automated luxury communism. Before you even referenced it, you sort of began to flesh it out. Um, I'm going to make a really quick point because it leads up to my question. Um, I've put in a neoliberal financialized economy. The accumulation of capital, I think, is really based on, um, the accumulation of debt by lots of people. So I think debt is the big thing. Um, mm-hmm. unsecured debt rising at 1.25 billion a month, right? That's unsecured, not against an asset. Against an asset is even worse. And the government's help device scheme is basically, you know, an asset inflation scheme. So debt is the big thing and financialization is the big thing. So I think maybe the tipping point might come if we're looking for some sort of tipping point might be the point at which uh, a financialized demographic, students as well, you know, of course, I work in a university, students are financialized. The tipping point might come whereby the working class, middle class can't meet their debt obligation. Um, I think as uh, Aditya said on your show a few months ago, if interest rates go up 2%, percent one and a half two percent 2%, loads of people can't meet their debt obligations, can't reproduce their own labour power. I think that might be the point. So I don't know whether the question is the extent to which debt might be the tipping point.
2: Let, let me add something to that question while we're on the subject. I mean, yes, you may. <laughs> <laughs> you Jeremy, know I mean? in your book, you use the women's movement of the 1970s as a, as a way of thinking about a model for the emergence of a collective politics. And we've heard, and obviously the woman is the subject of that political movement. We've heard various candidates for political subjects now. The graduate without a future is one of them. Um, the indebted subject is mm. another. Um, what, are, what, are, what is the potential for organising around, what are, the, what are the limits and possibilities of organising a politics around that
1: idea um, well, I think, I think those, are all, those are all good ideas. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the political subject is always constructed. It's never just, it's never just given. I think, um, I think the crucial thing for me in thinking about, well, how do you construct those kind of political communities and collectivities that make a difference, is that ultimately the ones that really make a difference are always based around concrete interests of some kind. Um, I think even the women's movement, when it's potent, is when it has a sense of, well, women's shared interests, rather than just being a question of identity. I get really, I get really, people really hate me saying this when I say it's not about identity, it's about interests. I think that's why the notion of class historically has been so important, although actually strategically, I mean, you know, it's one of the biggest of of Marxism. If you go looking for an empirical example of a successful socialist movement that actually was using the language of international class struggle rather than some kind of national, national community to mobilize itself, you just, it's going to keep disappearing. Even in Russia, it was very quickly became a patriotic struggle. So that's, but I think that, I think, um, so I think you have to find communities of interest. I think, I think, um, having said that about class, I think, I do think, one of the i mean for my position would be that one of the invariant features of capitalism is that unless people are mobilized at least part around they can be mobilized around other things as well but unless they're mobilized around the politicization of work mm. and relations of work you can't get anywhere mm. so we do need some kind of reun- i mean whether it's an online union or whether it's something else we do we desperately need to think about how to you know, how to, how, you know, what a 21st century effective labour movement will look like and how that will be. So the idea of mobilising the workers, I'm, so partly I'm saying it's still about mobilising the workers because as long as, as long as most people live through selling their wage labour primarily, that, that's going to be an issue. I think there's other communities of interests that could really be mobilised successfully. I think in a, like, I think clearly we see it in the election now with the fact that labour's Labour's hopes of winning the election are all about people 's investment in the NHS mm-hmm. I think we could go much further in mobilizing people 's kind of collective interests as as users of public services. I think the reason that isn 't happening in an imaginative way is because to do that. What you have to do is you have to have a real program, a real alternative to the neoliberal approach to public services. Yeah, and, yeah. and the only really inspiring alternative to that would be a genuine program for the democratization, sort of mutualization and democratization of public services, which is something the new left wanted from the early sixties. I think there's, a, there's clearly real scope for that. I think that, I think the scope around debt, I think the scope around precarity. Um, but I think it's also worth keeping, you know, it's all, it's worth keeping in mind that, you know, to some extent, there's always, you know, people like Leclaus sort of show that, you know, there's always, although on the one hand, successful movements, progressive movements are always grounded in these specific sets of interests, that there's always a kind of tendency, a kind of movement towards a horizon of universalization. Mm-hmm. So the sense that, you know, we are the 99%, you know, yeah. we are the people, you know, we are everywhere, we are everyone almost everyone apart from this tiny handful of people also crucially has to be part of it that kind of sort of will to universalization i think is really important and i think um which is part of one of, is part one of the problems with the kind of tendency there's a huge tendency at the moment i mean the dominant tendency on the kind of soft left the kind of you know the world that me and zoe spend a lot of time in especially is that is that this idea that it's all about localization now. it's all about yeah, localism yeah. it's, it's all about idea. it's all about devolution mm-hmm. um I keep saying to people, "What is it you think you're going to devolve? You know, we don't, Westminster isn't holding on to all the power. They gave it all to Price all the House Cooper. You know, they didn't. What is it they think they're going to? It's not. And um. And I, th- I think you know that what <laughs> that speaks to, and what is the problem of how of, of of how you actually constitute forms of power? I think this is really. I said this about the last government. I mean, I said that one of you know. I think I think with New Labour, I said. I mean, I said this sort of ten years ago. But I think you know, the, the left made a real, strategically got it all wrong most of the time in New Labour so we complained about new labor not doing things that the balance of forces was never going to allow them to do you know they were ne- they weren't going to just come into power and suddenly start spending loads of money on 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 public services and taxing people i mean they didn't have a mandate to do that the balance of forces was never going to allow it but what we should have expected of them after ten years of Labour government is they should have done three things. I say this all the time rebuild the Labour movement, rebuild local government. I don't mean devolve power to it, I mean create communities of power in localities and for God's sake, take advantage of the digital revolution to fuck Murdoch. You know, do it, do it, you know. They could have done it. They could have built sorry again, excuse language, but they could have done it. They had te- they could have built a completely they could have built a whole alternative media sector. And so what have we got? You know, Novara is fantastic. Uh, and, but it's also kind of incredible that Navarra is like the only thing like Navarra, you know. <laughs> Navarra, in the 60s, in the, the Wilson government would have been throwing money at Navarra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, and this is the demand we have to make. The demand we have to make, of, of, if, if there is a progressive government, we have to make the demand that they do things... Whose objective is to change the balance of forces so that the kind of, so that new, so that empowered collective political subjects of the kind you're asking about are, are, are facilitated. They can't make them come from nowhere, but they can help. And that, I think, has to be the key demand, ultimately.
4: It was weird, it's weird, isn't it, you say that? It, because it was a real failure of the imagination rather than a failure of mandate with the Labour Party because they did, they devolved kind of technical power but no money. So then when this government came in, they were able to instantly choke off 40 percent of the money to local government and then say what you've got all the power (coughs) this is your problem so it was really a really really smart it was a really stupid the Labour party but i don't think it was actually i don't think i don't think they were thinking how do we dodge our left wing our left wing duties i think they were just not thinking but that's i mean that's that's
1: well, no, I think they'd been completely convinced that there was that they, you shouldn't. They didn't want to do it. I mean, they, the core cool people in, around New Labour had, be, had just become had been convinced by the neoliberal narrative that yeah. the, the people who know how to run well, the so, world are finance capitalists, so, and you should let them do it. Well,
4: so then why would you make even the pay and live no service to devolving to local authorities? What should they do? Because it? it
1: was a way of doing that. Okay. Cause exactly. Because it was a, it was a way of what they actually did. They devolved responsibilities, but they, they dissolved them to kind of networks of quangos yeah, and yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and and outsourced companies. Yeah. It was a way of financialising, it was a way of actually handing over power to the finance capitalist who I mean, Brown became I think genuinely convinced that you know how to run things and other people don't and people don't.
4: I mean on the matter of debt, I really, I think once you kind of, if you do take that leap and say I'm not ashamed this is a debt but I'm not ashamed of it and I didn't enter into it willingly and I and I, and I, I didn't have an alternative and I didn't sign up to what it was going to do to me if you take that leap then I think you could not only build a movement around it, but build a movement with a very clear objective, i.e. cancel this debt, a very radical <coughs> objective, th- the same, and a very kind of demotic spirit where, you, where it, there is something quite kind of hedonistic and, and delight it, delighted about it, you know. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I hold out a lot of hope for that. And I, and I think and this is huge in the Greens that they that, that you know they, they are really clear this is what they are articulating really clearly clearly which the mainstream parties cannot articulate which is a money system based on the extension of credit by private companies will never serve the needs of its people and will always leave them chasing growth to supply the debt which a very small cadre of people have created and that that is why i think the greens are getting as far as they're getting is that they've they found a way to say something which contains its own answer, which nobody else has. It's
5: utterly undiscussed, sorry, yeah. well, in the big debate. Private debt.
4: Yeah. Not oh, yeah, you know, yeah. but they... beyond
5: the discussed
4: question. But they don't want to t- talk about private debt. They don't want to talk about un- asset-backed private debt. They don't want to talk about the extension of credit as a kind of social responsibility or, a, or an activity without social responsibility. And they don't want to talk about the need for growth being predicated on completely stupid debt. So... Obviously, that leaves them, their hands a bit tied. <laughs> I mean, in
1: the states, it is talked about. I mean, and there are there are examples. I mean, in Argentina, in the night, in the last decade,
3: I think two quick points: one about uh, the debt thing, and then one about why has there not been a digital hegemony coming out of the Labour mm-hmm. Party? <clears throat> what's the what's the converse of debt? Well, it's assets. When we talk about the graduate of that future, why are they not more radical? Despite declining pay, self-employed have seen uh, real incomes decline by twenty percent since two thousand and six. Uh, and self-employed are a massively growing group, especially since 2010, right? All the outsourcing kind of contracts work on the premise that people who are employed in-house then become self-employed. It's quite common. So what's, what's the converse to this increasingly sort of debt-backed economy? Well, it's asset inheritance. So why aren't young people angry? Because they think, well, you know, I'll have to pay for my education. I'll probably have to pay for my kids' education. I might have to pay for the NHS. I might have to pay for all kinds of things, but there's this inflated asset worth 250k, 300k, I might get some of that. And I think that's what's holding a lot of people back. And if that, and if that, I think a lot of people, this isn't really talked about with the discussion about the radicalism or lack of it or, or the presence of it with young people. It's about asset inheritance. And for a lot of people, if that thing didn't exist, they'd be willing to just chuck the baby out of the bathwater, actually. But that's, and I think that's why I thought the inheritance tax, nothing's made waves in selections for a non-event, but the inheritance tax moved by the, the Conservatives, I thought was a smart idea and so much you can buy off a lot of, Young people, if you're saying we're going to scrap inheritance tax. Um, and I just want to but say. What
4: they don't realise is how long their parents
3: are going to live. I know. <laughs> of course. Yeah, that's but I think mean, there's really rarely talks about asset inheritance in terms of pinning back radicalism <coughs> amongst young people who are really yeah. hit hard by the crisis. And then the second point, why didn't, um, why didn't Labour build a digital hegemony? You look at again, look at the Democrats. Sorry if I sound like an American father. It's like, you know, but this is really, what happens in the United States since 2006 is astonishing. Both in and outside the Democrat Party. If we look at why the Democrats became so good at digital after 2006, you've got the Howard Dean campaign, the Diniacs, 2004, the Democrat nomination, he lost it in, was it Iowa? Yeah. You know, because he, he thought the mic was off, he started screaming. Anyway, <laughs> the Diniacs, so this guy managed to mobilise a lot of young people, very smart, not Democrat Party members, actually a lot of people, there's kind of now join the Green Party instantly. You know, and they were saying this guy's saying the right things. He was anti-war, had great politics. You know, Vermont governor, uh, so obviously unsurprisingly progressive. Lots of people went to the, the Dean campaign. Really elevated expectations. Great digital operation. His chief of staff, guy called Joe Trippi. Very good book by Joe Trippi. Check it out about this this whole experience. And then obviously Dean fails. John Kerry wins the Democrat nomination. So where do those young people go? They started Blue State Digital, which is now the world's most successful digital consultancy. And then Echo Ditto, another very successful digital media consultancy. They turned DEAN from America into Democracy from America, which was one of the big organisations that got behind Obama very early doors. You can really trace the failure of the DEAN campaign into the Obama campaign. Now, why did that happen? It's because the US has a primary system. It's very open to newcomers. and It's very kind of permeable. Britain's not like that. And the Labour's a very centralised organisation. And so I think the kinds of people that went, were drawn to Dean in 2004 and then became the backbone of Obama in 2008, don't be surprised if in the next five years, those kinds of people are actually joining the SNP and the Greens. And they're going to be building that kind of digital project, I think, because it's not coming from labor I mean, no. their digital stuff. They don't just, want it. It's appalling. Yeah, you know, don't. it's really it's
4: they're, appalling. They're scared of it, I think. They're scared of it because it kind of entails some, some delegation of, of, of opinion. And they, they're scared of it.
1: Well that's true. But because one of the things about like, I always, I always have to say this about Labour I mean anyone my age or older remembers the 1980s. Yeah you know, the, the traumatic experience of that there was two traumatic experiences to that generation. There was there was in 1983 you know people on the left often, often forget you know 1983 going to the country with a radical socialist manifesto for the only time in its history and almost being completely wiped out. And in 1992, running the best campaign, having everybody in the country say they supported our policies, and then having the sun say, oh, we don't like Kinnock, and then losing. So, and that was really, and rightly or wrongly, I think that trauma is still there. So, I could imagine some of the kind of younger, sort of, you know, post-Blairites, people like Stella Creasy, being less worried about that stuff. I'm not saying, I'm not drawing any conclusion from that. I just think they haven't lived through that experience. Yeah, yeah,
4: yeah.
1: Any more questions?
6: uh, I just wanted to know um, obviously after the election the UK party and people who feel like that, even in the Labour Party about uh, immigration and about uh, the the EU uh, they're going to be some kind of a force in Parliament um, perhaps for the next five years and there will be a referendum before that five years is up Uh, and if the result of that referendum might be that Britain actually leaves the, co- the, the EU. Um, that might be a pretty cataclysmic event uh, so far as the social makeup of the country is concerned. Uh, I'd like to know what your views on that would be. Suppose, in fact, uh, Britain left the EU as a result of the present uh, makeup of Parliament. What would be the effect upon the Thanks. Labour movement? Thanks. We'll take the other question
2: leadership. then the Okay, great.
4: Wow, that's handy. <laughs> do you know each other? <laughs>
2: Sorry, why
4: do not you start with that? Um, I don't agree with Anthony King about anything much, but I do agree with on one thing about the EU, which is that we could leave, and we wouldn't. We it would be very unlikely that we'd be in a situation stronger than Norway's, and Norway actually weirdly has more. has more, um, kind of undemocratic interference by the EU than anybody else because it doesn't because it doesn't even have any say in it. <laughs> Just to keep its trade agreements going, it has to it has to abide by EU decisions which it doesn't is not even at the table for. So I don't have a really I don't I don't really it's it's kind of divided down a left-right line this. Do you want to be in the EU or out of it? I don't think that's true. I think there are a lot of EU decisions which are not left-wing, which are kind of privatization based agendas. Um, so I don't really agree that any right-thinking lefty should want to stay in the EU, but nor do I think that we'll gain a huge amount of national autonomy by leaving it. Will
6: there be any effect on this?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, it'll be cataclysmic. <laughs> but I don't think it will... I don't, I don't think you could say it's going to go definitely in this direction, definitely in that direction.
1: Jeremy? Well, yeah, I don't disagree with any of that, unsurprisingly. I mean... I don't think there's really any chance of us leaving the EU because I think if it actually comes on the agenda... The capitalist class in Britain will throw everything at making sure there's a there's a novo. The, the capitalist class in Britain does, wants us in the EU. It's part of the. We're crucial to the whole project of global neoliberal financialization. and yeah. it's a it's an absolute it's a huge problem. It's the problem of the conservatives. I mean, Aaron's right. The conservatives have a huge problem. It's a huge problem that they have this a significant section of their traditional base is nationalist, and they are in class terms they are committed to a project which is globalist and internationalist in nature, and it may well wreck them it may well destroy them um but i don't think i don't really think there's any chance of it happening of course i mean if it did yeah of course i mean if it it would only happen if it does happen i can only see it happening as you say on, on, on the basis of a kind of um nationalist populist agenda um which is pretty is pretty catastrophic but it's interesting if you if you watch it's one of the things i do try and watch quite carefully if you watch opinion polls on on the on europe you know it's the right's version it's the right's version of the welfare state and privatisation you know people have been saying they're opposed to privatisation they want higher taxes on the rich they want you know more spending on the welfare state for 30 years but they keep voting for Tories anyway right. and it's the right's version of that when they when you ask them when, when it doesn't look like it's really going to happen you say should we leave the eu they say oh yeah we should leave the eu and then when it, as soon as it starts to come on the agenda as soon as it looks like they're actually setting a date for a referendum the polls very quickly <laughs> start to shift against it um, so personally, I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any real chance of it happening. But um, I agree about what the consequences would be if it did.
3: Um, yeah, I mean the the reasonable estimates were giving UKIP twelve seats about a year ago, but now you have got Nate Silver. He called every single he called every single state right in O eight. I know you got one wrong in '8 I think every one right in two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. He's working with some pollsters in the UK. They're giving UKIP between one and three seats, probably one. Which I mean, you think well, that's counterintuitive, right? I think Carswell's safe, 10,000 majority. Reckless, less so. By-elections are funny things. <coughs> Farage has said if he doesn't win in South he stands down. He looks spent. I mean, he just looks absolutely exhausted. Um, and I think they've probably peaked. They've probably peaked in the Europeans last year. Maybe I I was thinking that they'd get 12 MPs. Uh, that would be awful.
2: Because
3: he's, he's a nightmare in the European Parliament. Imagine the House of Commons, you know, with these kind of grandstanding things. YouTube hits, 2 million yeah, views. Yeah. You know, you can imagine, right? I mean... That was a nightmare, but I don't mm-hmm. think that's going to come to pass, actually. And I thought I th- my, my view on it a year ago was this. They'd have 12, 15 MPs. They would successfully frame a referendum on the EU as a referendum on austerity. Mm. And I thought the left was going to miss a trick there. They'd say, look, this is causing wage depression. This is causing cuts to public services. You know, to get rid of that, you need to leave the EU. And I thought that would be quite a close shave. Now, like I said, the polling's not showing that. The organisation's exhausted on the other hand, they're getting lots of money now, which they weren't getting a year ago. I think what's quite likely after what's quite likely after May is that Farage may stand down as leader. I think Cars will take over, and then that's a very interesting project to the right of the Conservative Party, um, and that may grow and, in a different way. Right? So the only really I mean, there's a really great analysis by two scholars, the book on New Kit by two guys from Nottingham. I was trying to remember the name on the tube on the way over. Yeah. it's good though. <laughs> great book. Thank you. And, yeah, Matthew oh, Goodwin, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, and Rob Ford, right? He has on Twitter says Rob Ford Britain, as in not the actor. Um, I don't know, Rob Ford. <laughs> yeah. No, no, sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, Rob Ford and Matthew Goodwin, and they say, look, if you look actually, they do really great discourse analysis, from this. you weren't talking about migration until the BM, the BM until until twenty ten. Till um, what were they talking
4: about?
1: Just it was just Euro skepticism.
4: no wonder they never go anywhere. Yeah, and, and
1: they're and yeah, weird. Well, Alex Sked was kind of thinks he was a leftist.
0: We're not talking
3: about man. migration until, you know, uh, until after 2010
4: But um, what it's worth I
0: don't, so we won't think,
3: leave you. I, I don't
4: think Farage is going to win South on it Because yeah. he's, too, he's scared <laughs> to go out It's really interesting When he actually goes campaigning He won't walk down the street Because he's too, he's too mindful of a negative event and, I, and it's true that you know One negative event can make a whole campaign look bad Even if everybody loves you But you don't see Boris Johnson sta- scared to walk down the street When Boris Johnson goes out He he goes on the train.
6: But how far do you think... Sorry, uh, no, uh, no, uh, i No, uh, The Andrew uh, Marr program where Ed Miliband was asked again and again and again and he kept on denying it. He doesn't want anything to do with the SMP. He's being, uh, a, a, he's we, being we, an, an idiot. You need to be totally unrealistic to the fact that he will probably have to rely on the SNP surely. He of course I'll have to rely on him. On him. Yeah.
4: Where does he think he's... Where does he think that... Would he rather not be in government than well, talk to the SNP? He's being ridiculous. Well, it
6: sounded <laughs> terribly idiotic, I mean, to yeah. people watching it. But he's simply not, not on. I mean, uh, let me answer this question. Let me answer this question. I you really know. see
4: them like two divorcees it's, not going to their daughter's wedding. They're like, oh, I'm not going, I'm not going. Of course they're going to go. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but, I mean, there's loads of things that could transpire. I mean, this is what... I mean. I mean, as uneventful as the last month has been, there's been, this has really been a non-event with regards to, you know, the election, election, has been completely boring. Compare it to the last time, Bullygate, uh, Duffy. Yeah, the car, literally there was a car crash on the day Labour released their manifesto in 2010. There was literally a car crash. And it didn't stop. You know, it was a, it was a month-long car crash after that. And this time it's just been so boring by um, comparison. What I think it's, it's going to get interesting is after May 17th, 18th, um, and you'd look, I mean, I remember I was talking to Richard Reeves, who became the special advisor of Clegg oh, yeah, after yeah. 2010. And he was going, there's going to be a rainbow coalition. So obviously, even Lib Dems were saying this right before the last election. But was right Greens, SMP, SDLP, was the rainbow, Greens, SNP, SDLP, it's a Northern Irish party. Uh, you know, and that was the talk. That was the chat. Lib Dems are going to get 100 seats. Good in the go- I mean, nonsense, right? Laughable now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mean, I remember Reeves even saying, he goes, who's the Lib Dem candidate in the 150th target seat? Who knows? <laughs> and he was, this was a serious thinker. Right? He was the head of Demos, think tank. Um, this time it's going to be very, very different. It's all up in the air. I mean, you could genuinely have some kind of agreement, a one-year government, and they'll try and talk about electoral reform. That would buy UKIP, it would buy the Greens, it would buy the SNP. I don't know. And then they may say, we'll go back to the polls. We went to the polls twice in '74. I put some money on that. It was four to one a couple of months ago. You know, I think, I think, that's, I think going back to the polls now, given what Miliband said, is more likely than an SNP... Labour coalition You may get confidence In supply for a few months And it's not Doesn't seem That won't work what For five years Surely What do you he
4: think He's going to achieve Going back to the polls That he'll suddenly Get all those SNP votes They're never going to Vote Labour again
1: Yeah <laughs> yeah, they, they they don't they know what they're doing. The SNP, even the, nobody knows what the SNP is. The SNP do not know no, what the SNP. No, 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 Yeah, their membership now is a completely different composition from yeah, what it yeah. was six months ago. Yeah. You know, they, the the SNP. Nobody knows what it is now. That's, I one reason it doesn't know how to relate to it.
0: Yeah,
6: but, yeah, um, yeah.
1: I don't think it's more left wing than Labour. You know, it is now. But, but it's like more left wing. Its
6: membership
4: is more left wing than its own high command by yeah, a mile. Yeah.
1: And it's got all, and it's got you know most of its most of its membership. It's new membership are pro-independence, but I think it's got enough of its members and enough of its voters don't want independence. They want radical devolution and they want the social democratic bloc in parliament. There's enough of those. If they withdrew from support for it, it would collapse. I mean, I think it's very, we're very likely to see, especially with the implosion of the Scottish Labour Party, we're very likely to see moves for some new party coming out of Scotland, I think, some kind of Scottish Social Democratic mm. Party, which so, will be agnostic on independence.
4: But I think, if we, I think if we had a progressive left, either if the Labour Party was that, or if we had somebody that wasn't the Labour Party, then they wouldn't necessarily, all most of their arguments for leaving would disappear, right?
2: I I should have stopped you five minutes ago with a Labour SNP government and near-extinction of (laughs) UKIP. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks to our panellists, Jeremy, Zoe and Aaron. Good luck next week. Good luck for the next five
0: years.
1: (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.